I wasn't terribly surprised. I thought it made sense dramaturgically. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Dramaturgically. I'm your host, Stephen Clark, and today we are rejoined by an absolute favorite of the podcast, our first ever guest, and my personal favorite. Uh, I'd like to welcome back University of Western Australia graduate and film enjoyer, Mia Preto. Hello. <laughs> welcome back, I'm back, Mia. Episode, this is your fourth appearance on the podcast? I think it is the fourth, yeah. Nice. So, but this is probably the most structured one, because before all of this, we were just kind of talking. Yeah, we're still just figuring it out, really. Yeah, yeah. So, no, it'll be it'll be great to have you on um, now that the podcast has sort of got a bit more structure and a bit more of a, of a spine to it. Um, and, yeah, we're going to be talking about um, a film that is, is close to both, our, both of our hearts, I think, um, and to the hearts of a lot of people around the world, um, not just for what the film itself represents, but for what the filmmaker and the, the filmmaking company and... Just the uh, the entire uh, long lasting legacy of Studio Ghibli. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is a bit of a stretch for me to say and claim, but I reckon this is probably one of our favorite films of this year. Yeah. Am I wrong to I, say that? No, no, I, I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong at all. Um, uh, that's a great little plug because because next week I will be going through my, my personal. Uh, top 15 ah, films yes. of the year. So stay tuned. So stay tuned for stay that tuned one. For and that. You, you might see if it appears on the list. Um, but abs- absolutely, um, not not only just this film, but also Studio Ghibli as a whole has meant so much to both of us, I think, in our lives. So really looking forward to unpacking this week's film of the week, The Boy and the Heron, or How, How Do You, you Live? the Second World War rages, the teenage Maito, haunted by his mother's tragic death, is relocated from Tokyo to the serene rural home of his new stepmother, Natsuko, a woman who bears a striking resemblance to the boy's mother. As he tries to adjust, this strange new world grows even stranger, following the appearance of a persistent grey heron who perplexes and bedevils Maito, dubbing him the long-awaited one. Wow. Um, that is an incredibly simplistic way to, to put that film, I think. <laughs> it sort of doesn't, doesn't spoil too much, actually. Um, I, feel like, I feel like it's good because I liked going into this film a little bit blind, like not knowing what was going on. Because within 10 to 15 minutes of it starting, you just get plunged into this epic fantasy world. And I remember when we watched this for the first time in Sydney... Um, I just felt like, I think I remember telling you this, but I remember feeling so safe yeah. in Miyazaki's warm experience hands. I just felt like 
we were going to go on this epic journey and it was going to be so much fun and it was going to make me feel sad and happy and excited and all sorts of emotions as most Studio Ghibli films do. And I just felt, I had that feeling that you sometimes get with certain films where you just knew you were in the hands of someone who knew what he was doing. And that was really nice. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, the the instantaneous uh, feeling of safety as you see those classic uh, Miyazaki-wide sprawling shots of, mm. of Japan. And the score. The score starts to kick in. And, you know, like mm. classically these scores in, in Miyazaki's Ghibli films, they... They start really stripped back, just a piano, like yeah. just, just, just faintly in the background, almost unnoticeable. Like just <laughs> brings this like pristine fantasy to to the everyday real life, um, and to, and not just Tokyo, but uh, Japan as a whole is always portrayed so beautifully in his films that you you get this sense of awe and wonder straight away, and exactly that that wash of calmness and safety <laughs> washes over you as you sit in the cinema and you're like, well, I'm just about to go on a fantastical journey. Like, I know. Like you just know that that money you spent to sit there was well worth it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's not a waste of time. Like there's no questions. There's no questions in your head going, I wonder if this will be good. Cause you just know it will be. And we were definitely not disappointed. I think we've watched this twice now. Yeah. So we watched the sub. We did the sub in Sydney a couple weeks ago and we just came back from watching the dub today. So we've sort of experienced it both ways. And I know that we want to have a conversation about which one's better because that's always a little debate, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, later on, though. Later on. Later on. <laughs> yeah. No, you're absolutely right, though. I, I think it, I think it was important to, to watch this film in both iterations. For, for me personally, because, um, of course, I always want to experience the film as the filmmaker originally intended in its in its language of of, of origin um and i am a true believer like i know you are as well mia that that is the the truest way to experience the film and and in a lot of ways the most the most fulfilling and and most accurate um way that you can watch the film and but but also i i was extremely excited to see this particular film's dub as i i have enjoyed previous ghibli dubs in the past some more than others, um, particularly the Princess Mononoke one stands out to me as being a really high quality one. Um, but, I, but particularly for the voice cast attached to this, mm. um, though I do have to say because we are just coming extremely fresh off the bat of seeing the dub, um, that I think I speak for both of us when I say that we found it to be a little underwhelming on, on the voice acting side of the dub. Um, I personally um, felt that I was recognizing the voices a lot. And it was sort of taking me out of the experience a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's fair. I wouldn't say the same thing for me. I just prefer sub. Mm-hmm. So just generally dubs don't work for me. I'm just... I've I've never even like thought about watching a Ghibli film in dub. Mm. It's not even a concept that's in my brain. Yeah. Like I've watched every single... I've watched like a weird number of Ghibli films. I've watched every single one. Almost. Except Porco Rosso and the cat returns and stuff for obvious reasons. But... I've watched most of them, and never once have I ever thought about watching it, it dubbed in English. Um, so I don't know. Like it was sort of mind blowing to me that we could actually do that in cinemas and stuff. So I don't. I just. I just prefer subs. I just feel like it's. I, we were talking about it earlier. I just feel like it's more true to the script and the director's vision, and it feels more authentic and true. And yeah, I, I don't know if I really looked at it too. In such a detailed way as to whether the voices matched up or things like yeah, that. Maybe yeah. I just didn't pick up on it because I'm not a filmmaker. 
<laughs> no, well, the, 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 you know, in some ways that's actually kind of an interesting point because I, I guess there's probably reasons why it did and didn't work for both of us um, in a lot of ways and we might see it through a slightly different lens. Um, I did te- I did see it through a bit of a technical lens a lot of the time. Um, I couldn't really help myself with the... I just noticed that the when we watched it in the in the sub in the original Japanese, um, the just the the voice and and soundtrack were in such synchronicity and were really fine tuned um, to to really give you that peak emotional um, uh, experience and and I did find that the voice acting and the and the soundtrack the score in in the dubbed version just weren't aligning in that certain way to, to get me to that emotional high point. Um, and I felt like that was sort of a technical, um, issue, um, and potentially a performance issue as well. Um, and you obviously get the classic things like the, the language, not exactly translating in the Mm. way, um, that you expect. And to be honest, I found the plot slightly more confusing in English. Um, so I would personally recommend Mm. to anyone that hasn't seen the film or, or has only maybe seen the dub um, to to go and give the original sub an experience for sure because I think yeah like you say Mia that is the 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 most uh, traditional and and complete experience you can have watching this film. So yeah, Robert Pattinson is really good though. Yeah, Robert Pattinson's he obviously is great. great. <laughs> it's so honest. funny. I couldn't remember if he was British or American because I don't know. His voice was so interesting. I was like, he could do that. I didn't realize he could do that. Yeah, I mean, he was the massive draw card to even yeah. give the give the dub a go because I mean, I'd heard all these crazy things that you know his voice acting in this was actually unbelievable, mm. and that he all these crazy things like he rocked up to the voice studio with like pre recorded notes on his iPhone and he just handed it over and they used it straight into the film and stuff like that. <laughs> and he recorded everything he needed in like two days and he just walked off after that. Like, yeah, job well done, all done. Job well done. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. No, it was good. There were other people in there that I was surprised about, like, had no clue Florence Pugh was in it. Hmm. Absolutely no clue. And she's, like, her voice is kind of the main thing about her, isn't it? Everyone loves her, like, deep husky voice. Yeah. But that was, I didn't even recognize her throughout the entire film. Absolutely. So, let's move on to, to the film itself and talk about the what, what we thought about it. Because, I mean, uh, I know for a fact that we both have a lot of different thoughts about this film. Um, and personally, I found watching this film twice really interesting because both times I kind of came away with like slightly different interpretations of what it all meant and, um, and what Miyazaki was, was trying to get across. Um, I, I think an important, um, prefix for this conversation that we're about to have is that it was often spoken about in the build up and the production of this film when it first started, that this was a film that Miyazaki made for his son. And he made it to explain his absence in his son's life and his addiction and, and I guess, um, persistence with his work and how that sort of changed their relationship. And, uh, I th- and also viewing it as what was also set out from the outset to be Miyazaki's last film um, as well really puts an interesting uh, perspective on everything that you're watching because... Uh, it was. It's a film that is deeply rooted in the idea of legacy and the idea of um, connection to parents, and also about um, about succession and 
and, and all the all these ideas um, and and a lot of classical Ghibli themes as well. I mean, I, I found that a lot of a lot of this film was was just paying homage to to Ghibli as a studio and to Miyazaki's films and his his filmography as a whole. And this film really felt like like a like an incredible full stop on his on his filmography. I know that there's rumors that he may continue yet as a director already talking about making another film, but yeah, I found this to be an incredible incredibly poignant um, example of a director looking back at his work and 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 trying to trying to unpack all of those ideas. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think one of the most striking things to me about this film is how it feels like a conglomeration of all of Miyazaki's films. There are elements of all of his top hits or his most famous films, even his less famous ones, that are all packed into The Boy and the Heron. And that makes it to me such a beautiful sort of tribute to himself in some way, to his own creative, his own creativity, his own imagination. And to watch this film is to almost experience every single Studio Ghibli film all at once, all over again. Um, Yeah. As if, as if it was the first time. And I thought, I just, I just always love that experience because if I love, if one, one thing that I absolutely adore about Miyazaki's films is his ability to transport you to some completely fantastical imagined world which feels so real and lived in and there's so many little details and you're just thrown into this dreamscape scape where there are which has its own rules and you're forced to just listen to them and it's ridiculous sometimes like the parakeets in this film are absolutely (laughs) ridiculous and it's so silly but you just accept it. You just go, okay, this is where I am. And I feel like your mind never really leaves the world of a Studio Ghibli film. Like, I don't know if my mind has ever let go of what the landscapes of Princess Mononoke look like or what the bathhouses of Spirited Away look like or mm. what this film looked like. I think my mind has always held on to, the, to that imagery and to the feeling that it gives you to watch these films. And The Boy and the Heron is no different to me. Um, it's sort of like Miyazaki on steroids in some way Um, and I think that both of us benefited very very much from being very experienced with his filmography having gone through all of his most iconic work Um, and to go into this blind without ever having seen a Ghibli film I don't think you'd get a lot out of it Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that this is a film that absolutely benefits of having the knowledge of Studio Ghibli's work, of Miyazaki's work. I mean, it is an absolute love letter to the studio and to his life's work. And um, for you're so right, the, the, the iconography of Ghibli and of Miyazaki's films are so ingrained in my brain. Like, he's one of the truest examples of a filmmaker that is utterly, utterly original in the modern landscape that operates... On a, on a level of iconic filmmaking that is Tolkien-esque, you know what I mean? All-encompassing. You see a world mm. of Miyazaki and you know instantaneously from looking at a single frame that that's a Miyazaki world and each one of them feels so unique and so separate from one another but yet at the same time they're also familiar and they're also have these way has this way of all his films have this way of rhyming you know, whether it be similar themes or character mm. designs or 
um, just small elements within each universe. I mean, the the um, the little floating creatures in this wada, film. Wada. Yeah, the wada wada. So wada, I for- wada. forgot what they called. I like the suit sprites and Spirit Way and yep. the little, I forgot, those little creepy bone things in Princess Mononoke. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And what else? And... I mean, even the yeah, the characters dressed. I mean, like uh, Kiriko's um, attire and whole vibe really reminded me of Lady Eboshi from Princess Mononoke. Mm. And um, I, the but the story itself was maybe more spirited away. Yep, the it, character design of those old ladies looked exactly like Yubaba from Spirited Away. Yeah. Um, I was going to say even the floating rock in the sky, Laputa in the sky, castle yeah. in the sky. Yeah, um, and bringing Mark Hamill back for that as well. Yeah, the animal elements to this, Porco Rosso. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Who can absolutely. Forget the one Ghibli film we've both not watched, even though we desperately want to. Even even the <laughs> even the sort of the the, the partnership um, sort of like mm. road trip element uh, when yeah. when the film is is sort of my neighbor Totoro in a lot of mm. ways. Even the um the the oh, the character design of those black spirits in the other in the in the fantasy yep. world exactly like the spirits of Spirited Away, um and I was gonna say something else, and obviously oh yeah the overarching um theme of World War Two yes is present in The Wind Rises another one of my favorite Miyazaki films which and even though it's not uh, Miyazaki the I mean the opening sequence is all Grave of the Fireflies oh, to me I mean yeah. it's incredibly familiar. In it's that amazing. way, so so this film is simultaneously does something really clever, which is act as a completely original piece, but also like we said, a, as a homage and a love letter to Ghibli films, and that's really interesting when you add the context of of what's actually going on in the plot. So, um, to to mention the the great grand uncle who is sort of handcrafted this world. Mm, he's the creator. He's the creator, or this god yeah. presence, or. In quotation marks, I personally take it to my interpretation is it's Miyazaki. Miyazaki himself, yeah. But there's another interpretation where, uh, what's his name again? Mahito. <laughs> Mahito. Oh yeah, yeah. Mahito. Mahito. He's Hayao Miyazaki because Hayao Miyazaki's la- it's, it's, yeah. this film is almost also autobiographical, where yes, he could be the grand uncle, i.e. Miyazaki, trying to pass down his legacy studio ghibli to his son i.e mahito or it could be mahito himself because mahito's life in the film mirrors miyazaki's own life where during the war he escaped tokyo to go live in the countryside and he builds the fantasy world inside his head like it's from both angles where hayao miyazaki is both the young boy and the old man yeah like wow you've just like made me have a bit of like a Okay. Yeah, you're like spasming. Like a brain moment right now, like <laughs> that, like that, that, that's yeah, that's so correct, babe. Like, I never thought of it this way, but even like because there is sort of this element of like time, right, of the past mm. and the present and the future, you know, that they yeah. that they construct with this world, and and isn't it fascinating to to have this director at the end of his life, um, have a conversation with a younger version of himself and oh. talk. That's so cool. Yeah, exactly. And he's saying this yeah. can be whatever you want it to be. You just need to build it, and you are untainted Ooh. by the world, and it can be beautiful. And he says, "No, actually, I am tainted, and this is, yeah. and what I create isn't gonna be perfect." And it's this this idea of like understanding that and conversation with, oh. and yeah, like this. I love this film. This film has <laughs> this film is is really beautiful. It's so good. And, 
But then there's the added element, like you said earlier, where this is him talking to his son as well. Yeah, absolutely. So even though he's talking to his younger self, he's also talking to his son, who has sort of refused to take on Studio Ghibli. Because yeah. let's face it, the films he's made us flops, like absolute yeah. flops. But like, other than that, like he obviously also doesn't want the pressure of handling Studio Ghibli, this iconic brand, this iconic filmmaking machine. Yeah. Um, he just doesn't want it. And I think this film also is Miyazaki processing that realizing that his world this legacy that is created destroys itself yeah it collapses and it literally does collapse at the end of this film the fantasy world disintegrates and becomes nothing well it becomes it becomes mundane again mundane, right yeah. it actually transforms like mm. the 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 animals and the and the fantastical mm. elements as they re-enter the real world transition back into their natural state of being the magic is lost yeah the magic and the magic yeah. is, and the magic is gone creativity well, dies exactly mm. um and, and that, that sort of brings on a, another interesting question that i think is is really important prevalent within all miyazaki's films but in, in this one as well um rears its head which is miyazaki's his um his thematic devotion to this conversation of nature versus um society and how the two contradict and conflict themselves i i had a really interesting thought well i think it's interesting okay <laughs> thought. let's be the judge of that <laughs> and, and this, i haven't talked to you about this yet yes, so this will be interesting been keeping it secret i've been keeping this on a you secret my authentic reaction i did i did <laughs> um and as i was watching this film again um i i was noticing a lot of of, of biblical connotations and and i guess um the, this whole idea of of the great grand great um grand uncle being almost like a god figure right yeah and he sort of is this creator who's flawed and sort of is keeping things together in the world is is suffering and collapsing and all his mm. creatures are in disarray and you know whether it be the seagulls they don't have the food to survive mm. because of the because god forced them to be there mm. um and now they don't have what they need to survive that's almost like a very poignant message about like the creator and the created and sort of what obligation does he have to them and then you have the parakeets who like <laughs> who are hilarious on one hand but when actually when you look at it are sort of a really interesting reflection of just society and humanity as a general because they sort of represent these sort of like crazed um devoted beings to to a figurehead who sort of is is brash and abrasive like all of human and he sort of represents maybe like the the abrasiveness of like the 20th century um, society and mm. and sort of the way that they have disregard for, for nature and everything around them. And they sort of just bumble and crash into everything and they fill mm. things and they eat things and they kill things. Huh. And, and sort of like um, there's a really interesting scene at the end where the parakeet king confronts God essentially and, and says like, you know, you've broken the rules and mm. now you must suffer the consequences. And like we yeah. are asking for repetence essentially like we we he he essentially reaches out to god yeah um and sort of questions him and mm. and what and what the world takes shape and and when man tries to handcraft and take shape of the world he destroys it um and i i just found all these really interesting things yeah, within that's, these that's, ideas i can get on board with that like i definitely agree with the grand uncle being this godlike figure he's literally acknowledged to be the creator the king of the world mm. and i'm really interested and curious about unpacking that parakeets as humanity thing especially towards the end when you're talking about when humanity tries to reach up and mess with divine 
the divine plan, the world falls apart. You know, it's very Tower of Babel-y. Yeah. If, if that's yep. the right biblical story to, yeah. to um, allude to. But yeah, I definitely agree with that. Like, maybe on one hand, it's Miyazaki recognizing how he is also not perfect, how he has flaws and he's created worlds and perhaps like mm, conflicts within Studio Ghibli itself and also within, I don't know what, what conflict he would have made, but perhaps it's him recognizing that he has created chaos as well as beauty and magic. And he recognizes that maybe he's not the best person to lead the studio anymore. Well, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I, I, I think like if you're talking about like what has he given the world, mm. like I, I think all creators and this sort of goes into that Oppenheimer theory of like everyone creates something that gives the world the power to destroy itself or it's it's gives its creation the power to destroy itself. And I think that that is sort of Ghibli in a way is it mm. is it's this powerful um, conglomerate uh animation studio that ha- that has the monopoly over asian animation it is it's the king mm, of the king yeah. it's the domineering presence in animation now but that's not what it started as it started as this beautiful hand-drawn animation studio that was you know just like any other animation studio mm. was full of artists that were wanted to prove themselves and wanted to to speak their their truth about the world and um put beautiful art into the world and now it's sort of grown into this big behemoth monster and without its king without its god without miyazaki where does it go does it crash in and destroy itself yeah no that's a great point i'm definitely starting to understand where you're coming from no that's that's definitely definitely a great point like sometimes i often think about this you know when a studio's legacy is so based on one person yeah like studio ghibli is hayao miyazaki hayao miyazaki is studio ghibli is there really a studio ghibli when he dies inevitably because the guy's 82 he's not getting any younger mm. and it will probably fail and that's really sad to me you know what i mean because i i think about like other animation no not just animation sorry just in general like movie producing people and organizations in the world mm-hmm. and i can't name one where the fate of an entire like production studio entire animation studio is tied to one single person yeah you know what i mean so it is it is interesting like they're so codependent on each other in a way. They are, absolutely. And I mean, like probably the closest um, uh, comparison you could make is maybe Disney. And, yeah, and when yeah, you, and when you true. when you look at the, the death of, you know, like Walt Disney, you know, had a hand in everything that was made by Disney at that mm. time. And, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, the, the magic went out of Disney when, when Walt Disney died. And, you know, it's obviously had eras of success and, and continued to make beautiful films um, throughout its, its, its lifespan. Um, mm. but now perhaps has, has become almost the antithesis of, of what it also set out to be as well. No, yeah. It's a money-making machine right now. It's like a, you know, the capitalist grind moves on and on and on in Walt Disney right now. And, and, you know, I, I guess Miyazaki maybe, maybe to round out this conversation is asking that question of like, is it better to hand it? To somebody mm. who might destroy it, whether it be the parakeet, you know, or mm. to or to pass it on in the bloodline, who may reject it, mm. or is it better to to let it all fold in on itself, um, last in the memory, and let the magic return to the earth, and it just exists in our world uncaptured. Yeah, it brings up an interesting question. Like, what would you rather? Would you rather 
Would you rather when Miyazaki's life comes to an end? That's quite a dramatic way of saying it. Mm. Would you rather that Studio Ghibli just went with him, or would you prefer that it continued on and continued making movies? Um, a la Disney. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what would you rather? I mean, I, I, I think I think regardless of what I personally would, would, would no, rather... No, no, but it, that's what I'm asking. Like, what what would you rather? I mean, I think I would personally <laughs> rather that, that, it, that it ends. Um, I, I think that, that as a... I think, I think that, that Ghibli was sort of a, a vehicle for Miyazaki um, to express his, his artistry and to, you know, make the films that he wanted to make and to tell the stories and to share his fantastical worlds that he so clearly had in his brain with the rest of us. And it's a, it's a gateway to endless imagination. Um, mm. and, I, and I think that that imagination will always be prominent in artists and, um, and whether or not we allow artists to use the behemoth that is Ghibli to, as their vehicle mm. to, to tell those stories is really interesting because there's an argument to be made that um, maybe these artists wouldn't get to tell these stories without the behemoth of a vehicle like Ghibli to uplift them and to give them that platform. Mm. Um, but I guess there also is the argument to be made that, you know, if the cream rises to the top of these artists are as good and are as devoted as Miyazaki, maybe maybe the best way for them to express themselves is to go on the same pathway, the same journey that he did and to, and to let Ghibli stand alone uh, as his Rushmore. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. It's a it's, it's an interesting, interesting film. And I mean, it's yeah. it, specifically, I mean, we've been talking for, for a while now and we haven't really talked about the plot. And that that's no. the kind of film that it is. No, it's very it's very thoughtful. It's 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 weird. Like it's like every other Ghibli film. Also, I'm noticing that we're saying Ghibli differently. Mm. I'm saying Ghibli. You're saying Ghibli. I don't know what's the right one, but anyways, <laughs> let us right. know in the comments. Anyways, so, oh, what was I saying? You're saying that it, it's a, it's a very thoughtful film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember now. It's like every single Ghibli film that existed, but it's also not. I don't know. Did you notice how geometric it was? Like how futuristic it was? Yep, yep. There were certain elements of it. It was like a light, a, like a glowing portal. And, mm. you know, it's it's very traditional, but it's also very modern. And it seems... It's, visually, to me, it was also very different plot-wise. Oh, God. We were supposed to talk about the plot. I'm just thinking about the visuals again. <laughs> no, but this is, this, is, this is what I mean. This is such I don't a... have very structured thoughts. No, it, I, I, I think I think this film as a whole, I mean, it kind of, its plot is probably the least interesting thing to me, to be honest, out, no, of, all, out of all the elements. If anything, the plot confuses me. I have questions about the plot. So do I, actually. I love the vibes of this film. This <laughs> yeah. is what I'm rating it. Five stars out of five for vibes. Plot, I don't get it. Towards the end, he was calling his stepmother aunt his mother, and I thought it was a bit weird, but, and I didn't understand. I was curious what you thought. If we want to talk about plot, right, let's figure out some of these problems that we had with the plot. Yeah, what okay. What were your questions? Definitely, because, you know, I think no matter how much we love this film, it isn't a perfect film. No. And I think that, yeah, plot-wise, it is a bit sticky and a bit messy, and I don't know if that's just the the getting lost in the in, in the dub, perhaps, on our second watch. But even in the first watch... Even in watch, the sub, I didn't get it. Yeah. There's <laughs> then a, again, we did fall asleep for about half an hour because it was really cold in that cinema. You've exposed us badly there. But yeah. <laughs> we have watched the film. We, we have watched the film. <laughs> but, you know, the first time around, there was a little jet lag going on. But And alcohol. And alcohol. <laughs> but the... 
you're, you're right though because the the plot is is a bit messy and there's a bit of confusion going on and you know I think always when you throw in a bit of a time travel element a bit of like alternate reality element yeah um, it's a bit obscure and I think personally the film at some point doesn't know whether it wants to be a buddy film with the boy and the heron or it wants to be this sort of like um, mythological odyssey where um, Maito is sort of like appearing in different places and, and it's not really about... Because when he goes into the fantastical world, I have to say, it's less about the fantastical world. <laughs> like, there's not that many scenes of just like being in a different world. I mean, he's on like sort of like a... on a coastline with some waves crashing... Mm. Um, and then he basically spends the majority of it inside somewhere in whatever it be some slightly different locations. Um, so I wasn't sure what the film wanted itself to be in the midsection too much. I got really confused when they went into when he went in to go rescue his auntie and the whole scene with the with like the bandages. Yeah, that was weird. That was weird. So because so this lady, this auntie of his, is now his stepmother. Mm-hmm. Because his dad, after um, Mahito's mom's death, went and got with her younger sister, got her pregnant, and then they're going to get married. Yeah. And now Mahito is moving in with his auntie, who's now his stepmother. And I don't think he realizes that that's his auntie. Yeah. But then at some point he realizes... I don't think he knew her. I think that's I don't what, think he yeah. knew her, yeah. No, but that's the confusing thing, right? Like... At some point he does At, at some know. point he does, and then he starts calling her mother. Yeah. That was a bit weird. I didn't get that. That wasn't explained enough. I think that was, they were trying to do something along the lines of, like, he now accepts her as his stepmother, that sort of storyline. But mm. it didn't really feel earned because they barely no. spent any time together. And no. when they did, she yelled at him and said, go away, I hate you. <laughs> exactly. They... No, it just felt a little bit weird. Like, I think I think the idea was that he was feeling a lot of grief. Yeah. And he was searching for a mother figure. Because he had lost his, and he was looking for her. She, he was trying to get her back. Yeah. And the film makes a big deal out of the sister, uh, Netsu, Natsuke, not Natsuke? Natsuke, 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 looking exactly like Mahito's mom. Yeah. They looked very, very similar. So she is the ultimate replacement for Mahito. Yeah. In terms of a maternal figure, and at some point, I think in the film, once he starts calling her mother. That's him accepting that this is his life now and he's no so. longer fighting it. I think that must be it. But maybe it was just a bit lost in translation for me. Like, yeah, you know, because then he's, I don't know, it was a bit weird. The, 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 point of trans, the point of transformation, the point of change was very abrupt for me. Yeah, definitely. I think there's yeah. a couple points of change that were extremely abrupt. I mean, yep. um, but even for me, I personally feel like the film would have benefited from more one-on-one time with the characters. Yeah. Um, and those characters expressing those feelings. Yes. Um, a bit more. I didn't really mm. understand why all our characters were separated for so long. Um, I even, I mean, he even really only meets up with his mother's character um, with about... 25 minutes to go in the film and really starts yeah. to build that relationship. Yeah, that was in that you just reminded me of something else that I thought was weird. And when him and his mother get 
the young mother, his mother as a child gets separated and they see each other again. They're like crying and hugging and she's so upset and she's just so relieved to see him. I'm like, but you knew him for like 20 minutes. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. That was a bit confusing. The relationship wasn't there. And she also seemed to understand that he was now her child. Yeah. (laughs) Even though there was no realization moment that was really given to that. No, not really. And no reason for her to, to have understood that really. Yeah. Um, so it's quite interesting the that whole connotation and she seemed to to also know of her death as well at the end when she mentions like she's not afraid of fire i thought that was really beautiful though that's a beautiful scene and like it it made us both tear up for sure but i I did find myself questioning afterwards from a plot perspective how did she find out how did she know this and like (laughs) and like and whenever the characters separate so like he so martin so you know uh he he gets separated from the heron for like 10 minutes and then comes back and you know they're friends and and then like also gets separated from his mother comes back after 10 minutes and they're friends and yeah it seems to be a, a really strange occurrence and maybe it's just sort of like a maybe it's just more general storytelling on those parts because everything is so metaphorical and so thematic in this film mm. um but i did find that those those more core elements of like relationship building um, that are so prevalent usually in Ghibli films. Yeah. Um, did lack a little bit in this one. Much weaker. I definitely agree with that. Um, I also wish that Mahito himself spoke more about his feelings and his emotions. A lot of stuff was implied. Yeah. Um, but I really would have loved some moments of reflection, some moments of like conversation with other characters, sharing how he feels. You know, because that's that's the basics, right? The, of storytelling, you you show a character in a certain state and over the course of the film or book or whatever a TV series you witness them changing yeah and that's um signposted by them actually expressing their feelings yeah but mahito never really does he's sort of like upset about um you know moving out of tokyo to live with this random lady he's never met before so soon after losing his mom and you know, he's sort of running away. He's sort of escaping from this reality. And but and he meets all these people in the fantasy world. But he never really goes, wow, this is amazing. Like, wow, I really hated my life back then because mm. this, this, this was happening and my mom died. He never really goes like that. And I would have probably, you know, I don't want it to be super obvious because I'm not, you know, I don't need obvious yeah. scripts. Spoon I don't fed, need yeah. to be spoon-fed con- like, information about how characters are feeling. But I definitely would have appreciated a little bit more exposition on his character, given also that he is the main character. And that would have helped his relationship with others as well. Definitely. And, you know, he, he's a strong character in some ways. But, yeah, absolutely, you're right. Like, it's some emotional vulnerability would have been nice. Yeah. I mean, we're dealing with it with a child who's just lost his mother and then has the opportunity to spend one-on-one time with her as a child. Mm. I mean, I think that's an emotional gold mine you're sitting on um mm. uh, in terms of like this that how does a child deal with 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 grief and with um the idea of letting that go again and you know maybe you know i know the whole world's collapsing when it happens in narrative but maybe there's just mm. a moment of time to give to 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 him being really reluctant to to that separation again and you know what has he learned so far and maybe he's maybe that he's learned more about his mother now that you know he he's He's, he's confident, you know, that he can survive without her and, you know, mm. that he's had this experience. He gets the final goodbye that he wants. But none of those sort of ideas, I guess, get enough time. Um, and I, Not really, no. Yeah, I found the film to go quite fast both times we watched it. Yeah. It's, it felt very short. And um, to be honest, I wouldn't have mind just a bit more meat on those bones. That's completely fair, yeah. Here's another thought that I kind of 
thought of yeah. <laughs> during the second viewing. So you know how Natsuke is pregnant yeah. in this film, right? I kind of wonder whether one of the reasons why uh, mm-hmm. Mahito, Mahito um, kind of warms up to her is because he's sort of witnessing his mom's pregnancy with him as well. Right. Because there are lots of parallels drawn between his mum's pregnancy and Natsuke's pregnancy, where it was both very difficult, mm. and you know, they're both sort of connected to this magical world, and it's, I, I don't know, maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, and I don't know whether, now that I'm saying it out loud, I don't know if I love this idea, but do you know what I'm trying to say? I definitely know what you're trying to say. I Some think I sympathy, th- sympathizes with her a bit more. Yeah, I, th- I think they're definitely drawing a lot of comparisons between yeah. the two sisters as a whole. And this sort of idea that the one gets to live on and, and have her child and the other mm. one sort of is sort of has this doomed sort of experience yeah. and... and and, you know, I, I think that it brings everything home as well. And this is another reason why a bit more character work would have been really good for Maito because even the idea that, you know, that, that this stepmother is now having a child with his father and uh, the idea of, like, feeling replaced or maybe now that you are not, like, the legitimate child mm, of the family the anymore, child. the only child. Yeah. A lot of those ideas could have definitely been explored more. Um, but for, for, for what it is, I mean, the, you know, that that's, that's an incredibly high standard that we're holding this film to mm. it does a lot of things really really well um just on a fundamental basis as well i mean it's funny it is um entertaining it's beautiful it's beautiful and mm. we need to talk about the music oh of course <laughs> How the music is great joe hisashi is one of the all-time great composers and i'm absolutely thrilled to see that he's starting to get some recognition for this film and hopefully just in time for awards season yeah. because this is a masterful piece of scoring and soundtrack. It's beautiful. It's so iconic. It's extremely minimal. He usually, like, his openings are just piano, like this yeah. sort of held back piano motif and it's just like two or three notes, you know, being played over and over again, but it's so gripping. Like, it gets you from the first two minutes. I remember... At about the two minutes mark of this um, screening that we watched today, I turned to Steve and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I was getting emotional because of that score. It was so beautiful. And yeah, now he's got a Golden Globes nomination. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, mm. at long last. Um, and the, what he does so well in this film particularly is um, is that stripped back piano that he starts with. Mm. It's the slow layering of of that score you know whether it be adding the flourishes of the violins Mm. and just adding more and more elements and then there's this sort of like rising uh like cello in the background as well Mm. in the in the third act and it all comes together as the world is collapsing and it's this gorgeous ethereal um sort of uh perfect score to be honest i mean it Mm. is is it's my favorite score of the year and um, I I hope that... I, I really just don't think that any of Miyazaki's films are as timeless and perfect as they are without the work of Joe Hisashi. So yeah. we can't talk about Miyazaki without talking about his longtime collaborator. Who collaborated with him from the very first film, Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Yeah. Um, so he's been a, <clears throat> an absolute stalwart, stal- stalwart for yeah. Miyazaki. So to see him also sort of like put up one of his best scores um 
for Miyazaki's what will apparently be Miyazaki's final film. Yeah. That was really beautiful. He definitely came through. Absolutely. He definitely came through. It's like, you know that meme of the fire, the fi- piano fire on fire and the guy playing yeah. it on the beach? That's Joe Hisaishi doing <laughs> Boy in the Hair and like how Miyazaki's like, yo, can you write a f- score for my uh, He didn't need to go that f- hard. He didn't need to go that hard. But it's like, he went hard, but you wouldn't tell. You can't tell that he went hard because it's so minimal. So str- And that's why... Yeah. That's why I feel like he's probably he might not win the Golden Globes nomination to like Oppenheimer or something like that. I'm probably gonna Ludwig what's his name again? Ludwig Goranson. Goranson's probably gonna win it. But Joe Hisaishi will always have a place in my heart. Exactly, will always have a place in my heart because I don't know. I I also just love seeing non Hollywood people win awards (laughs) in Hollywood. Like Ludwig Goranson can win it like for the next frickin' oops. 10 years you want to beat that? No, we should swear on <laughs> this podcast. You can say, fuck, I don't care. <laughs> I don't know. It feels wrong. It's but, fun. you know, like, I don't know. Like, Joe Hisashi has been doing it since... Yeah, I mean, he's been doing it since the 80s. Like, the 80s. Like, exactly. come on, let's just give him a freaking... Yeah, for, for one of his globe. finest works, to be give honest. Give him a globe. And you, you bring up a really give good... Give our man a globe. <laughs> give him a globe. You bring up a really good point <laughs> that I wanted to talk about before we close up on the score side of things, is that a lot of composers today more is better yeah and they go hard you know and you know i i love as much as the next person you know the hans zimmer like everything is crashing and exploding and it's big and it's loud and it's using every instrument under the sun it's fantastic it's an ear orgasm you know what i mean like an orgasm an ear orgasm oh okay Uh, and you know (laughs) and and it's 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 just beautiful to listen to it's like soul sorry soul stirring yeah it's so stirring stirring exactly it's very stirring but equally the the stripped back um fine tune like joe hisashi just doesn't need much he doesn't need Mm. all these instruments he just he just creates a beautiful melody that underscores everything that suits the world and suits mm. the characters and suits the emotional stakes of the film perfectly and then rises it when he needs to, subdues it when he wants mm. you to, to focus in and, and, and just and just live in that moment. And he's just an absolutely wonderful artist. Fine and this is one of his best pieces of work. Yeah, but I do. I must say when Joe Hisashi decides to go really hard with a full orchestra, <laughs> he goes really hard because yeah. there's this four-hour-long video of... Okay, not four hours, but really long video completely free complete like full concert on youtube of joey saishi performing all of his best work from all of his famous movies a full piece orchestra and at some point in princess mononoke this woman this opera singer like rises out of the ground and starts belting out like the princess mononoke theme Mm -hmm. oh my god it's so amazing you should totally watch it wow i've never seen that it's like three hours long i used to listen to it when i studied Hmm. i know what i'm doing at work tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) Um, so good so to, just to finish off on the film itself, Mia, I just wanted to ask you, um, did you have a favourite scene or something that when you think of this film, you'll always think of? Hmm, that's difficult. I think um, I think my personal favourite parts of the film were the bits with the old man in it, with the granduncle. Yeah. I thought those were the most profound moments of the film and the conversations that he had I loved the bit where he um, looked at, um, I keep forgetting his name, Mahito. Mm-hmm. He looked at Mahito and said, take these blocks and build something with them and build a world free of malice. Yeah. 
And I just thought that was so beautiful. Like the idea that an old man, jaded, tired, wants to move on with his life, but doesn't want to leave his life legacy behind, looks to a younger person and hopes that they can build something better. Yeah. I just love it. A world that's free of malice. Yeah. You know, a purer world, a better world, because isn't that what we always hope for? And that's his message to, to mm. youth, to the next generation of artists, of people, of humanity. Yeah. Um, can can you take the challenge? Yeah. Um, and I love that. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and that that's that's definitely one of my favorite scenes as well. Um, seeing as you took a really strong emotional scene, I'll take a funny scene. I really like it. Is it when the parakeets looked up? When the parakeets... The parakeets... <laughs> I, I, I just I just I love when the parakeets just pull out the knives at any moment and, and they're, they're luring Mahito to the to the dinner table. The parakeets are so him. iconic. Like honestly, the bird imagery in this film is also excellent. They should just call it like boy and the parakeets. The boy and the bird. <clears throat> boy and the birds because like there are three different types of birds that rock up in this film. I don't know. Maybe Hayao has taken on bird interest in his <laughs> old age, but. The most vivid rendering of birds in film ever. Absolutely. <laughs> Never parakeets had more personality. Fantastic. Uh, in film than this, than this, this one. one. It's absolutely perfect touch. Like, this is a film that is equally parts, equal parts lighthearted, but also deep and cerebral. Um, and I think that the humorous elements of the parakeets are a perfect touch, too. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, make this film like watchable and fun and enjoyable because that's what Ghibli films are they're whimsy they are <laughs> they're fun they're whimsy they're silly yeah exactly and sometimes you know we, we get caught up in the in the, the large themes of these films but yeah. they're also equally silly and funny and they're designed for children so yeah I'm um, not sure if I'd bring a kid to see this one really I don't know I don't know I feel maybe. like they'd I don't know maybe they'd probably just enjoy the, the, the wonder parts of it I guess yeah probably um but yeah no well that was the boy and the heron. Yeah, we had a great time watching it twice and um, mm-hmm. getting to getting to talk about it. If you haven't seen the boy and the heron, definitely go check it out in cinemas while it's there because you know we love supporting uh, studios like Ghibli and filmmakers like Hayao Miyazaki. Um, the film is doing terrifically across the world um, yep. right now. I believe it topped number one in the US, really, um, which is I think it's the first time a Ghibli film's ever done that. Um, for a weekend, so That's fantastic really cool. news. Mm. Um, and even beat Wonka. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it was previous. I think it was the week before yeah, Wonka before or something. Wonka. What else has been out? Um, I can't remember, but yeah, it it, it definitely it definitely Salt was burn. at number one. Um, at some point. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Um, brilliant, brilliant. So Mia, I wanted to ask you a few questions. What I've been doing on the podcast lately mm-hmm. is is asking some rapid fire questions. Yes. As I know you're an attentive listener, I've had to change them up for you. I know. I prepared my answers. I know. I, I, I don't like being put on the spot. Well, I wasn't going to allow that. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you ten rapid fire brackets, not so rapid fire questions, okay. and uh, they're going to give the audience a little bit of a better understanding of you and and your life in film. <laughs> First question, what is your favourite film? Okay, this is easy because my top four on Letterboxd has been quite solid for some time. Mm-hmm. So my favourite film is probably either... Damn, what is my top four? <laughs> oh, okay. My favourite film is probably either Millennium Actress by Satoshi Kon or 
Princess Mononoke yep. by uh, Hayao Miyazaki. But another top contender is well, we've done we've done a podcast episode about this, but Emily, I love that film so much. But that's kind of more like a happy. I love it. Like it's so much fun, and it makes me happy inside. Kind of film. It's like a it's like a great pick me up. You know, I want to yeah. be happy, so I'm gonna watch this film. Whereas I think a Millennium Actress and Princess Mononoke, I appreciate them on what like deeper more intellectual levels so i would say it's either of those two both japanese and both animated because i like animated films yep fantastic great answer great answer i love i love both those films as well Hmm. second question what's a film that you didn't like at first but grew to love over time oh no (laughs) is there anything that comes to mind maybe something that you revisited or maybe something that you've thought about more over the over the years that that would be that'd be something that 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 you grew to appreciate. Definitely not Triangle of Sadness. <laughs> that one didn't work for you. I didn't like that one at all. Yeah. I a film I didn't like at first, but grew to love. See, this is a problem for me because I don't rewatch films. Yeah. I have like I watch it once. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I don't feel like giving it another go. You know, I don't have that kind of ability yeah oh god can we go back to this one i don't know yeah no that's okay it's just just... i want to go back to this one all right we'll pause that one i'm gonna skip that one i'm gonna pull out my letterbox and take a look okay i'm gonna give you a nice and easy one what about a film that you wish you could see on the big screen (gasps) oh you asked this question in one of the potties and i came (laughs) up with an answer crouching tiger hidden dragon oh wow yeah i think that would be Great. That'd be an amazing film to watch on screen. Yeah, we yeah. watched that for my first time recently. Yeah. And um, I absolutely loved that film. That uh, one would be so good on a big screen because you got those big, beautiful landscapes. Mm-hmm. Oh, it would be so good. We'll have, to, um, we'll have to convince our local indie cinema to, to put that one on for us. Luna Palace, please. <laughs> Which film do you think you've watched the most in your life? <laughs> okay, I've prepared for this one as well. Yeah. So... Like, in my entire life? Yeah, if you had to say, you think, just off, off feeling. Off my feeling. Okay, so when I was really... When I was a young girl, I had an obsession with Don Bluth's Anastasia. Yeah? Yeah, I watched that every other day. Okay, not... Okay, this is the other thing, right? I didn't have this sort of obsession with movies as a kid. Like, I loved them, but I didn't watch them all the time. Yeah, you're um, like a loser like me, yeah. Well, I was a loser. <laughs> I wasn't that cool. But I don't know. I've always just found it really hard to rewatch things. But I think if I had to choose a film that I've watched the most in my life, it's probably Anastasia. Just because I loved the songs. I thought her dress was so pretty. And I thought Dimitri was like the most handsome, perfect man on earth. Yeah. And so as a child, I would rewatch that movie over and over and over and over again. And I loved it. I just absolutely loved that movie. It's so great. Have you ever watched it? I have, but it's been a long, long time. I'll need to rewatch it. You should rewatch it because it's good. Okay, good, good. It's good. And I think it was because I loved it as well because um, when I was growing up, it was sort of Disney was sort of exiting that 2D animation stuff. Yeah. Um, It was kind of going um, into the Frozen, Moana, um, Brave sort of direction. And when I discovered Anastasia, I just thought it was so cool that there was this film that was like a Disney film, but it wasn't made by Disney. And it, they, people, the characters sang, and it was like a princess, and she found like a prince, and it was like, 
I just thought it was so cool. I thought I'd come across the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd come across something that no one else knew about. And I told everyone to watch it. And it turns out everyone had watched it too. So it wasn't that cool anymore. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sensing an animated theme here. So I love I'm animation. Gonna, I'm, I'm going to throw in a bonus question, which I just thought of. Uh. This is a question that people often have a conversation about. And I think you could in- offer some interesting insight here. A lot of people criticize animation and say it's just for children. What do you say to people who say that? I don't think it's just for kids. I think that it's great for kids because it's colorful and it's fun and you can do lots of cool things with it that you can't do in real life filmmaking. Like a great example is the Avatar The Last Airbender series where the animated series is just great. Like it's so immersive, it's so imaginative, it's so visual and it's so cool Mm. because yeah, whatever they thought of, they just draw it and it be as such but if you look at the M. Night Shyamalan version it's like they do a whole bunch of movements and a tiny little rock floats across the air because the CGI the the graphics just don't match up with the potential for animation so on a visual level it's just great for kids and stuff but I think that animation is one of the most that sort of flexibility that ability to do anything is one of animation's greatest um, greatest merits. Yeah. It's the most powerful things about it. And there's so many film studios and directors out there who use animation as their primary form of communication, of, of filmmaking. So Hayao Miyazaki is one. Um, like, honestly, if you think about every single one of Hayao Miyazaki's films, would they actually look better if they were done in real life? Mm. Not necessarily. Satoshi Kon with his films Paprika, A Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, um, all of those films, Tokyo Godfathers, they are films that are made for animation. Mm-hmm. You cannot watch them in any other form and their power and their beauty and their messaging is only amplified through animation. And there's other film studios like this, this Irish film studio that did films like The Secret of Kells and Wolfwalkers and um, there's another Seal one, I think? But they're also really lovely, and they have sort of also immortalized Irish culture and motifs and visuals through that animation style. And I just think it's a really pure form of art. Because if you think about it, like, the amount of work that goes into every single frame is absolutely insane. And I love it when you see films, animated films, that sort of break that boundary. So. A lot of my favorite animated films are films like Princess Kaguya or My Life as a Zucchini, which I just watched. And these are very atypical animation forms, stop motion using clay or watercolor. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's the peak of human creativity because not only are you creating a full story, but you're also creating a visual landscape to go alongside it. And you can morph it in any single way that you want. So I don't think it's just for kids. And if you write off animation as oh, it's like a kiddie thing, like, you know, silly stuff like Disney and Pixar, then you're missing out on a lot. And even Disney and Pixar films can be incredibly profound. Like, oh, Coco, holy crap. That film killed me. (laughs) But on another level, like, Soul as well is an incredible film. Mm -hmm. It was so much fun. I loved it. So I don't know if I answered that question, but that's kind of my feelings on it. I just think it's beautiful. Like, there's no such thing as limits with animation. And... I don't know you shouldn't limit yourself in that way in the same way that you shouldn't not watch foreign films because they're in a language you don't understand yeah 
if you choose to expose yourself to different forms of art, then you'll probably get a lot out of it. And it's all the more striking for it because it's visually distinct as well. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe that's that's my thesis on it. Great answer. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think I think it's yeah. It's a conversation that, that's that's always always topical and uh, a lot of old hats and a lot of um, people that that aren't exposed to animation will write it off. Um, and I think. I think it's it stood the test of time. Some of my some of my favorite pieces of art ever are animated. So mm. yeah, it's it's definitely a great a great um, art form. Um, have you got a guilty pleasure film, Mia? Anything that you sort of acknowledge isn't you know it's not Citizen Kane, but uh, you Anastasia? enjoy watching it. I think Anastasia is <laughs> like relatively well read. Anything worse than that? Guilty like, pleasure. I think I know that your answer to this, to be honest. Probably Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. I love that film so much. Yeah. It's like, I remember watching, <laughs> you know that meme where it's like, watching watching Lord of the Rings with the Tolkien fan, and it's like, by the and Aragorn kicks the helmet, and it's like, yeah. by the way, did you know that when Viggo Mortensen kicked that helmet, he actually broke his toe, so that scream that he did is his actual scream of pain. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. My equivalent is watching Pride and Prejudice and being like, wait it's coming <laughs> and it's like the hand scene where like Matthew McFadden reaches for Kira Knightley's hand and her touch is too strong that she has, he has to stretch it because it's like oh, oh that was so like shocking to me I don't know <laughs> I know every single moment in that film I've watched it so many times that's probably another film that I've watched like a disgusting amount of times it's true that's um, true but I don't know other than that I'm looking at my... Sometimes I like those silly little British rom-coms about yeah. old people, like, you know, like the old oak. The old oak. Or <laughs> the unexpected... Oh, <laughs> Harold Fry. I've never watched it, but, like, now I'm looking at my letterbox and it's, like, The Duke. Yeah. <laughs> starring Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren. Anything with Broadbent. Anything with Broadbent. Anything with Anthony Hopkins in it. Yeah. Um, anything with Dev Patel in it like I've watched ridiculous films with Dev Patel in it just because he's in it I'm like I w- of course I will watch the personal history of David Copperfield <laughs> <laughs> oh Always Be My Maybe that was a great film <laughs> <laughs> nice. I don't know there's some I don't know guilty pleasure films hmm. yeah that's probably it yeah, that's no. probably it. Some sort of period drama. I don't know. Some sort of period drama is probably my guilty pleasure. Some sort of silly historical drama. Mm-hmm. Oh, love that stuff. It's so good. Yeah, that's that's like the some, stuff I guess. Yeah, like some sad Japanese anime film about some girls about to die. Yeah. Your name. Your name. Your or... name by Makoto. Your Shinkai. name's loved. It's loved. That's <laughs> fair. That's fair. All right. What's your favorite film soundtrack? Oh, soundtrack. Emily. Emily, yeah. Emily. Yeah. I know y'all so were answering one. like Pirates of the Caribbean and Star Wars just because they're really iconic. But I like Emily. I think Star Wars is overrated soundtrack. You reckon Star Wars is overrated? Oh, I just oh, I just realized that I just talked about Star Wars for a second consecutive episode and I'm gonna lose more followers, damn it. Um Favorite yeah. soundtrack. It will probably be um Emily. I think it's just such it's so iconic. It's so beautiful. Again, minimal piano. So fun yeah. to play as well. I learned it on the piano before as well. Yeah. That was really fun. Incredibly catchy when you hear it as well. So catchy. And it just encapsulates the film so much. All right. Who is your favorite film character? Oh, character? Mm. Yeah, character. Any 
Hmm. Any characters that that resonate with you that that you that you go back to thinking about, or or characters uh, that you think about as almost as real people, like they're so fleshed out to you. Damn. Real characters, <laughs> Emily. <laughs> yeah, well, well, no, yeah, I'm Emily. These are just like I just have the same answers to everything. No, but honestly, like these are the films that speak to you. Like if if that if that's your answer, then that's your answer. Like for for me, it's um. You know, there's a there's a whole bunch of whole bunch of interesting characters that for me, um, like Apu from the Apu trilogy. To mm. me, he just feels like somebody that I know. You know, I've witnessed his whole life play out on screen, so mm. I know him. Or you know, um, even even um, Jack Lemon in his character C.C. Baxter in the apartment. Yeah, I mean, he just he just feels like a like someone that I that that I know and resonate with. Um, mm. And even um, Chuck Tatum from Ace in the Hole, like one of my all-time favorite characters, just this despicable side of humanity mm. um, that, that, that you see all around us. Um, I love when characters just fly off the wall. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I think about films in that way, to be honest. Like, That's interesting. I yeah. find it really hard to relate to characters, if anything. Mm. Emily's probably a character that I relate to a lot, just because a lot of her mannerisms and her um, life her habits and stuff I relate to a lot but I don't know if when I watch a movie I relate to characters in particular not even Travis Bickle no I hate I hate <laughs> Travis Bickle with a passion hate hate Travis Bickle I hate all those like extremist mohawk weird haircut dingy clothing gun slinging characters like I also hate Tyler Durden <laughs> hate Fight Club is there a question in here like what's a film that everyone yeah. likes that yeah, I'm gonna flip it on that. Right? So that okay, be your answer. Who is my favorite movie character? I have none. I have ca- movie characters that I enjoy. Like off the top of my head, I really liked Lily Gladstone's character in Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. Again, I'm looking at my letterbox and like I really liked the character of. Oh, another one is the character of Alfredo in Cinema Paradiso. I love him. Mm-hmm. Um, love Godzilla in yeah. Shin Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> Just the, kidding. The guy from M. <laughs> the guy from M was cool. Like, oh, actually, I got a great one? one. Yeah, the guy, the guy from the castle. What's his name again? Uh, Daryl Kerrigan. Daryl Kerrigan. <laughs> even Muriel from Muriel's Wedding. Like, yeah. I, there are characters that I like, but I don't think I have a favorite. Yeah, no, that's yeah. fair. That's oh, fair. I, I did go through a uh, Princess Leia phase. I mean, but we're not going to bring the conversation back to Star Wars, are we? Yeah, no, I've worked right, Star Wars. All moving across. on. All right, so. Second last question. What is your top film of this year? Uh, Like released this year? Yeah, released this year. I haven't watched that many. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I really enjoyed Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider-Man was a great film. Spider-Verse, yeah. Spider-Verse was a great film. Like, that's another another animated film that's just amazing. Yeah. Just incredible. Yeah. Um, Past Life is good. Not my favorite, though. Yeah. Not my favorite. Probably, probably, uh, I think this year. Yeah. Why you gotta do this to me? I don't watch nearly. This is rapid fire questions. You want rapid fire? You're getting rapid fire. I didn't ask for this. (laughs) All right. Let's say, in the spirit of this episode, let's say "Boy and the Heron." Cool. Nice. I like it. For now, we'll probably change. And the last question, and this is going to be another thinking one for you. If you could live in any film universe, which would it be and why? Is there any one that, like, is particularly, like, whether it be a Ghibli film, you know, would you love to traverse the landscapes of 
Of Mononoke or my neighbor Totoro, would you like to go to Avatar? All quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just coming. Don't on worry, the darling. Or don't worry, darling. <laughs> Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> the Star Wars keeps coming up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, any universe that I would like to be part of? Squid Games. No way. <laughs> Dune would be kind of badass. Yeah, okay, I like that. Dune would like be kind of cool, but I'm not too into I'm not into sci-fi enough to be like, yeah. Make that my whole life. Make that home my whole life. Salt exactly. Burn. No way. <laughs> I low-key didn't really enjoy Saltburn. It was just too gross for me. This is a film we disagree on. Yeah, this is the one film we disagree on. <laughs> I don't know. That scene of him slurping that this backwash out of the Spoiler. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Never mind, I'm not going into it too much. If there was any universe I would like to inhabit, which one would it be? <sighs> Sing Street. And it's no. just Ireland. <laughs> it's just Ireland. <laughs> I would like to go to Ireland. I would like to go to Ireland. I would like to inhabit... Damn. The last this is why you need to give me these questions beforehand. <laughs> these I questions usually work better when you just this. go off the top of your head. Well, I can't think of anything right now. My mind. How to train blank. a dragon? Would you like to ride a dragon? Hell no. <laughs> um. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Mr. Bean's holiday. Okay, I'm taking that as your official answer because <laughs> this needs to move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is it over? No, I have um, I have a couple more questions that are a bit more a bit more free form. You don't have to think. You can put your letterbox away and <laughs> just relax. I um just uh, I just wanted to talk really quickly about about film because you're someone that I enjoy talking about film more generally with without getting too specific on like filmmaking elements yeah. or like these sorts of things, but just like yeah, more. Yeah, because for context, I'm not. A filmmaker, no. or a writer, or no. a creative. Exactly, you're just someone who enjoys films. I'm an appreciator. <laughs> an appreciator of film. Yes. Um. So, <laughs> and and I know, and I know for a fact that you know, because spoiler alert, we're dating. That <gasps> no. If anyone hadn't picked up on that, um, you did, yeah, you did drop it at some point. I probably did. Um, yeah. I didn't realize. I'm very proud of her. Uh, <laughs> Me. <laughs> um, that I, that I. <laughs> <laughs> gonna be blumbering now um so i just oh. wanted to say that i noticed that yeah you've obviously been on a bit of a film journey of some sort yes. since we've started dating obviously yes. your letterbox is out of control multiplied massively yes, you've made me go and buy pro to be honest <laughs> yeah, that's true yes you that's influenced the, me the biggest impact of it's not good. of dating me is that i've made yes. you get pro letterbox I and i did not make you do it actually you did it you with influenced your own volition me. no no you just liked the posters I couldn't. I didn't even pay for the posters. Yeah, that's true. I didn't pay. I wanted the stats. Well, I just wanted to ask you a couple questions. Tell me a bit about the the films you've been watching this year, and did you watch anything that really affected you? Okay, I've got this answer because I make a list every year of the films that I watch for the first time in that year, regardless of when they were released, Mm -hmm. and I rank them. Nice. And oh boy, (laughs) I watched Cinema Paradiso for the first time this year in Singapore. Shout out to the projector. Um, And it was amazing. Incredible. 
one of the most beautiful film making experience film watching experiences I've ever had the pleasure of laying my eyes and ears upon. Um, it was extremely meta, first of all, because I was watching a movie about making movies and projecting yeah. movies in a cinema. Mm. So that was really cool. But on top of that, I just thought it was such a fantastic and heart-wrenching portrayal of growing up. Yeah. Losing hope in your life and then regaining it again mm-hmm. by reconnecting with someone from your past who impacted you and you'll always remember. And I thought that was really, really beautiful. And there were some monologues in there by Alfredo, which was so... Which was so which really spoke to me mm-hmm. at that point. He's that character has got a lot to say, um, and it's incredibly profound. And it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. And that final scene with the montage on the screen of everything is just so beautiful. Yeah. And to see that on a big screen was an incredible experience. And I really, really, really enjoyed that. Gorgeous. Yeah. No. Brilliant. Brilliant film. Um... Oh, and also. Yeah. <laughs> you just pointed at a movie on my screen as uh, if to remind me. I, I, I knew, I knew I that say. this one had a big effect on you because I was around you every day when, when you watched this film and I know for a fact that it stuck with you. So I loved it. Singing in the Rain is the best film ever. Yeah. I'm on the Damien. I agree with Damien Chazelle. What a great film. <laughs> to base so your entire personality fun. on. Okay, I did not. I, I no, Damien Chazelle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I definitely didn't base my personality on Singing in the Rain except for those one or two days. Yeah. When I watched it, like, one <laughs> after the other. But it was such a great film. So great. So much fun. Classic. Songs are great. Performances are great. How can you watch that film and still be grumpy and sad? Yeah. I forced Steven to watch it, even though he doesn't like musicals. He said it was great, which means that it's actually great. <laughs> um, that's, that's true. Yeah. And... You keep pointing at stuff. I, I'm just, I'm just seeing <laughs> films and I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be the really like this one. Okay, but. why don't I answer that one with the second question? Okay, yeah, great. The, the second question is, which filmmakers speak to you? Ah, uh, yes, thank you for ans- asking that question. No worries. Um, <laughs> well, basically, this year I watched this film called Lazaro Felice, which means um, happy as Lazaro, um, and it's by an Italian filmmaker called Alice Rorquaca. Mm. and she's pretty new on the scene i reckon she's pretty modern she's been around for maybe the last like 10 years mm-hmm. and she's made a whole bunch of films one of them called la chimera has is coming out this year i can't wait to watch it mm-hmm. at somerville shout out to somerville mm-hmm. um and she's done a whole bunch of things she's italian um but she is great um she does magical realism and it's just absolutely fantastic. It's subtle, it's quiet. She seems to focus a lot on pastoralism and rural Italian life. And her characters are so interesting. And there's just this element of mystery and fantasy to her films that I adore. And they're really laid back and stripped back. And it's like modern parables. Mm. That's what her films are like, modern parables. And we love a female director. We love someone who tells silly quirky not silly but quirky stories and Mm -hmm. you know isn't afraid to capture the silly ugly everydayisms of daily life and alice well to be more specific in italian alice rorwaka yeah um is one of my new finds whose film just whose films just speak to me quite a lot and I really love her work, especially Happy as Lazaro, which got a shout out by Bong 
Bong Joon-ho, yeah. director of Parasite, is one of his favorite films of all time. Oh, great. So nice. if you don't want to listen to me, which <laughs> I understand, listen to Bong Joon-ho. Everyone should listen to Bong Joon-ho. So yeah, exactly. That's, that's irrefutable evidence that you should watch that film. Exactly. Um, and just to, just to round it off as well, um, last, last question of the potty. What do you, what do you hope to watch next year? And I, I guess I mean this question not in a literal sense of like which individual films do you mean to watch this year, but like what types of films are, are you are you seeking out in your life? What type of of, of art do you, are you looking to cinema? Like what are you getting out of cinema? And what do you want to get out of cinema in the next year? Okay, well, I'm the type of person who I know what I like and I know what I don't like. Um, I like films that don't stress me out for one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I like foreign cinema. I love Asian cinema, um, and I love stories mm-hmm. more than anything. They don't have to be thrilling or scary or horrifying or dangerous or violent for me to be into them. Yeah. If anything, I find that I struggle with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you saw me watch Taxi Driver. Absolutely hated it. <laughs> I could recognize like the why people love it, but just the experience was too much for me. Yeah, I hated Fight Club, like I've said before. Again, I get it. I get it why people like it, but I just can't stand that sort of depictions of violence. Um, no, but that, that's really interesting. Like, cause, pointless cause, violence because people go to cinema for different reasons. You know, like yeah. some people go for that brutal realism. Yeah, exactly. They, they want to be confronted with the harsh realities of life. Other and people that's fine. go for escapism, and some mm. people go for like. Uh, witnessing the human experience in, in a unique artistic way and like, mm. and, and seeing how people express their artistry. Like, there's so many different things you can get out of a film. I guess I'm not asking, what, yeah. do you, what do you want out of a film? Yes, yeah, so this is just me babbling on about my own preferences. But I think, given all of that, I know what I like and I know what I don't like. Mm-hmm. And in terms of what I hope to watch next year, I find that as a result of my relationship with you... For example, I'm a lot more interested in exploring cinema from the past, from the deep past. Mm-hmm. So older films, I'm really interested in... Lately, my latest thing has been going through Orson Welles' filmography slowly mm-hmm. um, and sort of watching his stuff. Uh, we've been watching a lot of Billy Wilder, for example, a lot of yep. Charlie Chaplin, a lot of... Um, what else was the other one? Uh, Ozu. Ozu and uh, uh, Kurosawa. Kurosawa and... Uh, We've been meaning to watch Kiarostami. 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 We just keep, we keep, we keep forgetting. Bergman as well, Wong Kar Wai. Like, I'd love to go back into these auteurs of cinema and understand what they were cooking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I want to know what they were doing. Um, So that's one thing. I've always also wanted, I'm originally from Singapore. I've always, and I'm half Taiwanese. So I've always had deep interest in exploring non-Western cinema. I love it. I, I can't help it. I love exploring Asian cinema and I've been trying to explore uh, mainland Chinese cinema a little bit more. I'm not quite, it's not quite working for me right now, but I'm still kind of giving it a go. I'd love to explore more contemporary Asian cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to explore more Japanese and Korean and um, Southeast Asian films. Mm. Uh, I'd love to get a little bit more into tri- like classic Chinese wuxia and kung fu and police films. Yeah. Stuff from Hong Kong. Hong Kong's great for film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just I just hope to watch things that speak to me. To be honest, like I find it very rare that 
I watch something that sticks with me and makes me feel like I've experienced something profound and I'm just I don't need a lot of it but I'm kind of hoping it happens next year and I'm also hoping to get 200 films on Letterboxd in a year nice yeah no 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 as in I'm hoping to watch 200 films next year because I got bloody close this year yeah it's killing me that I I didn't make it so just so you know challenge set for next year challenge set (laughs) challenge accepted so yeah, that's kind of what I'm hoping to watch, if that makes any sense. It does, absolutely. Well, now we, we look forward to, to, or I personally look forward to speaking about all a lot of different films um, with you on this podcast and, and off air as well, as always, and um, and continuing to, to watch you share and and experience a lot of these films and filmmakers and art for the first being time. groomed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> This is what I do. I'm being groomed <laughs> by a filmmaker and pod film podcaster. Help. Le- le- listen, listen along to watch her slowly lose her mind. <laughs> Soon you're going to hear me using words like the mise-en-scene or <laughs> the blocking. I still don't know how to use that. I, I just... Okay, we're going okay, to show you Kurosawa's high, high and low and then we'll have oh, a conversation no. about blocking. Jokes aside, though. Uh, <laughs> I, I want everyone to know that she wanted to do this podcast episode on the boy and the heron. I'm not holding her at gunpoint. <laughs> this was her idea. This is this much is true. This much is true. This much is true. So but still, I'm being groomed. Okay, well, I'll just have to cop that one. <laughs> and letterbox stats show no lies. If uh, people want to follow you on letterbox, Mia, where can they follow you? Ah, uh, uh, what is my what's my <laughs> what's what's my username? Use- is it is it Miar? Yeah, I think, I think it is. Yeah. What is it? I don't know. Mia Preto, you can Mia look Preto, her up. You'll gotta, find her. Yeah. And if you want to follow somewhere. me, you look me up at uh, Stephen Clark on Letterboxd. Um, thanks again for listening in for the episode of the podcast, guys. Um, yeah, uh, you can always listen to my episodes drop weekly on Mondays or Tuesdays, depending on how I'm going with the editing. <laughs> and um, <laughs> if you'd like to like to contribute to the podcast, please feel free to to leave a comment or to you know suggest a film for me to review i'm always open to suggestions and if you join in next week i'm going to be talking about my favorite films of the year so make sure you don't miss that one all right thanks guys until next time have a great day bye bye